open these episodes with some kind of softly spoken ponderous question or statement but instead I'm going to launch right in this time because we're doing one of the uber texts here. If, you, if you've been listening regularly and you have a good memory you'll have heard me say before and you'll recall that I've said that the pieces of translated Chinese fiction I read whilst living in China, uh, actually living in China, were The Three Body Problem in its entirety, the whole trilogy. Uh, Lu Xun's Die of a Madman, and maybe one or two other of his stories, and Dream of the Red Chamber. And it's Dream of the Red Chamber that we're doing today for episode 90. Pretty exciting stuff. Um, I'll mention also that I feel like 90 is a significant number, because I've decided that on episode 100, after that, I will put the show on hiatus and do all the other things I've been meaning to do with my life before I come back to the show, which could take quite a while. So consider this the start of a countdown from 10 to the end. And consider this episode a big deal for me, because this is a sort of a, you know, it's not just one of the, if not, if not the text from Chinese Lit, this is also a formative one for me. It's also a significant one, because I've got a really interesting guest. She is a show host, internet content, literature discussion, creator type person as well, but she's doing it on the other side of the Great Firewall, over on Billy Billy, so that's exciting too. You'll hear more about her when the interview starts, but for now... Let's not beat about the bush, let's go straight to the Trotrofic news, the translated Chinese fiction news. So three news items today, I'll, you know, I'll try and keep it quick, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. The first one is a shortlist spot for a piece of translated Chinese fiction. It is Zijin Chen's, the, I almost said The Bad Kids, that's the TV show's English name. The book is just Bad Kids, so Zijin Chen's Bad Kids. That is translated by none other than Michelle Dieter, and I believe it's the it's a shortlist for an award on the Crime Writers Association. Yes, that's right, the Crime Writers Association Fiction in Translation Dagger. So it's got a spot on this shortlist alongside a few other books. Very exciting. Just big congrats to Michelle. Nothing else to say for that news item. Now the next one, it is news about good old Mr. Lushun. He's been dead for a long time now, but he's still getting <laughs> getting his name into this show pretty regularly, so good for him. Um, this is a very simple thing. Uh, I've linked to an article that discusses how his short story, Kong Yiji, has made it into contemporary online discussions about uh, the problem of higher education, that is like university education, and jobs or lack of jobs for young or youngish people in modern China. As an English English lit graduate over here in the UK, this this feels relevant to me too. Although obviously I'm 30 years old now, I've I've solved the problem of getting a job relevant to my degree. But certainly this is an issue we've had in this country. Depending on your your degree for a long time, interesting to see parallel or not parallel equivalent equivalent discussions in China and very cool, I suppose. Even if the circumstances are unfortunate to see Lu Xun brought into the discussion. Okay, third and final news item. This is um, a, something you can watch. It went up onto YouTube three weeks ago. It's a talk by Jing Tzu for the Asia Society about her book Kingdom of Characters, which is uh, 
it's not fiction, it's a non-fiction, and it's trace it traces the sort of evolution from, I guess, scrolling on a bone to pixels on a screen, data in the internet of Chinese characters. I have read this book, it's fascinating, uh, and I also have a bonus episode on this book. So I'll, <laughs> I'll use this as a as a chance to plug the Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trichafic, that is T-R-C-H-F-I-C, patreon.com slash T-R-C-H-F-I-C, I have hundreds, no, sorry, not hundreds, well over 100, uh, could be approaching 200 now. We're definitely way, way over 100 uh, bonus episodes of the show. So they're not they're not as long as normal episodes. They can range from like a five minute little snippet of a bonus question from an episode up to a good half hour, sometimes even more like 45 minutes of me rambling about something I've read. And I have just such a thing, me basically monologuing about my thoughts on Jingzu's Kingdom of Characters after having read it. So if you want to support the show and get something in return from just one US dollar per month, you can you can sign up to the Patreon. And don't worry that the show only has 10 episodes before it goes on pause, because it's going to take me ages to do 10 episodes. So you could sign up until hiatus time, and you'd still be doing a lot to support the show. So there you go. That That's all the news items, and that's the Patreon plug sneaked in here at the start. Excellent. Now, enough of my solo blabber. Let's hear me blabber with another internet uh, content creator, Annie Chu, talking about an incredible piece of content, uh, The Dream of the Red Chamber, a book that you should never, ever describe as content, ever. So on the show, we have Annie Chu, very exciting guest to have. I'm sure you listeners are going to find out why in a minute. So... Annie, hello to you. Welcome to the show. And can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. So I'm Annie, obviously. Um, if you want to know about my career, I'm a college teacher teaching about technology. Um, so literature or translation is not really my dominant part of things that I would do. But I am a qualified translator or interpreter. I'm a tier two interpreter from Chinese to English and English to Chinese. Um, so I do that quite a bit, but just on the side, um, not really as a main job. The main job is a technology teacher in college, as I have said. Um, as to the reasons why I'm talking here to Angus, and you may wonder how he find me and which is uh, the relevance of my views and my talk to the, this episode would be that I am a Chinese bilibilier up host. Um, <laughs> bilibili is, is the Chinese equivalent of YouTube. So I'm an up host. I have just a fair number of followers. Um, and they're the videos that the works that I've done are mostly expositions on Chinese literature, especially um, a main part of that would be uh, the dream of Red Chamber and some, um, a little bit Three Bodies and a little bit on Lu Xun and a little bit on Zhang Ailing, like Ailing Chan. Um, I would consider myself uh, a small bridge between Chinese culture and the English culture. Um, I went abroad and lived abroad for many years. That's where I got my understanding and my English. I found that it's it's really hard to explain and, and portray Chinese culture in English. Uh, it's very complicated. It's, it's just a big job. So I'm doing that as a hobby and as a passion on my side. Yeah, it's, it is it is an interesting challenge 
I, I found doing this show or just explaining Chinese things to friends here back home uh, with no connection to the country, my feeling is lots of things are, you know, sort of similar or equivalent. The one I, the example I always use is family. There's not many countries that don't emphasize the importance of family values. Lots of people in the mm -hmm. UK will tell you that family is a traditional value, but in, in China, it's a mm -hmm. whole other level. It's probably a stronger more strongly felt value and there are similar yeah. and different ways in how it's expressed like the way some families yeah. do christmas here isn't so different from how some families in china or lots of families in china would do chinese new year but there's other right. things that um like i don't know um the differentiation between like your your in-laws and your father's side and your mother's side it's hard to see mm -hmm. any equivalent here so yeah there's all sorts of funny little challenges and the world, I think we were we were hinting at this in our conversation before I hit record. The world's going in an interesting direction in many ways right now. And one is, you know, interactions between Western countries and, and China. When you zoom out, uh, it doesn't always look so optimistic. But mm -hmm. on the internet, there's a great opportunity for smaller, really positive interactions. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Exactly. I used to joke the point of my show was to avert a nuclear war. I don't really believe it, but yeah. in all jokes, there's a grain of truth. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you had much contact with like uh, internet users outside of the Chinese internet before since you are using Bilibili as your platform? What do you mean by interaction? Like, so um, your viewers, are they all... Do you think they're all living in the PRC or like... How do you how do you manage the sort of communication like that? I think most of them live in the PRC, and then there's a small number. They are ABCs people who have been abroad for many years, um, but I've come across some of them, but they they don't take the main part. I communicate with them just in a live streaming room, and it's pretty big in China. I don't see that being big on. In, in the West, maybe it's ever since TikTok went to what abroad, um, that's people started doing that. But it, I think it's a hotter trend here. So we call it Zhibo. Mm -hmm. So I talk either with my face strong, or I can choose that, or, or, or I, I don't, I just talk audio um, and lively to people who would like to come into my room and listen to me. And that thing, that's the main communication mode cool yeah of course comments in the video is that what you're asking um yeah i guess partly that as well mm -hmm. speaking of like um the, the cross-cultural thing when you're doing your 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 live streaming or producing videos is it ever mm -hmm. on uh western literature as well as chinese literature or, or literature from other parts of the world sometimes i would relate to western literature i would compare um for example i often compare the role of Cao Shiqing, you know, the author of The Dream of Red Chamber and um, Shakespeare, or I would comment on how Jane Austen would influence Chinese readers and things like that, but not like as a main theme to explain it. Sometimes, yeah. Oh, it's really interesting. I realize we should move beyond the, f the first question here. Um, Sorry. But no, no, it's good. It's fine. It's fine. Um, 
when you you mentioned about the popularity of live streaming um it's definitely a thing on on the uh the the um at least the english language internet but i don't know if i've ever oh. heard of a literary live streamer before like uh, i know the the big, <laughs> the big yeah. live streaming platform i guess internationally is twitch twitch.tv which started out as like a video game live streaming Platform. yeah oh yeah 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 yeah. and i know it's evolved since i know a lot of people do like political uh commentary stuff on twitch these days maybe there are mm. literary streamers but i'm not really immersed in the world of streaming but it's good to know um that they the principle works because clearly you are executing the principle that's it's very cool <laughs> yeah so my next question i guess you maybe already slightly answered this one uh but what sorts of literature are your personal favorites I don't even know I have favorites. Um, I've considered this question since, yeah. I, if I call it favorites, it's just an incident, incidental favorite, for example, The Dream of Red Chamber. But I try to think of a theme, a rule to my favorites, how I would passionately like some literature more than others. I can't really um, encapsulate some underneath logic to it. Um Maybe I just like things that are very vividly describing life, um, things with a bit romantic love to it, um, and things that have condensed artful forms, even the higher arts in, in the works, in, in the story, and not just some stories. Uh, it would be a story that can bring me to a life that I cannot experience myself physically, um, but I can definitely relate to through reading the story and I can learn something about um, in that story and not um, learn like real learning. For example, in, in The Dream of the Red Chamber, you get to become half a poet, even things like that. I, I don't know yeah, if that's a school of literature. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but you're right. Yeah, it's a long time since I read this one. I didn't reread it for the episode, but I do remember very strongly that although mm-hmm. it's a piece of um prose fiction, it's a piece of prose fiction that absolutely adores poetry. It has lots of poems within it. Um, mm-hmm. but of course, I was reading them in translation. So, and the translation I was reading, I sadly I do not remember which one it was, but the uh, English translator had decided to preserve the rhymes. Um, or make it rhyme in English, which perhaps yeah. might have been at the cost of the the, the original meaning slightly. So it was an interesting yeah, experience. Probably. But aside from the actual content of the poems, the characters, especially the young characters, I do I can remember pretty well how much uh, our our heroes love love poetry. So it's a very like yeah. all, all forms of literature piece of literature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. It sounds like, in general, you, the types of literature you like are really different from from my favorites. I've found. What are your favorites? Well, I used to say, "Oh, I like a bit of everything." Um, it's very holistic, but I think I've found through doing this podcast, I've been able to learn to be more honest with myself uh, um, yeah. about sort of admitting, admitting or commit committing to what's my favorite. And I think it's definitely science fiction and horror. Science fiction, horror, and fantasy usually go together as a trio, and I found mm-hmm. it's the the weirdness and the darkness that I like is strongest in sci-fi and uh, horror stuff. There's a kind of excitement I get from those stories that I don't get anywhere else. I have read 
sorts of high literary realistic works that really have uh, impressed me or moved me or immersed me um giving mm-hmm. a sort of trueness to life either in the uh, the descriptions or the social conditions or the behavior but for me when I'm reading I like to be excited and I like to be so you said you like to be taken to a place that you, a life you never could have lived yeah I like the same thing but I like it to be a life no one could ever have lived <laughs> or that no one's lived <laughs> yet because it's in a strange future but um hmm. I'm not I'm not against other kinds but I've found that's my favorite and it's pretty different from uh Dream of the Red Chamber but Dream of the Red Chamber does have elements of um like fantasy magic strange ideas about like um I guess reincarnation and fate and funnily enough or well not funnily enough unsurprisingly those are the bits that catch my attention the most yeah then do you like the son of ice and fire Uh, I read that um, all those books once as an undergraduate (laughs) over the space of about three years. And then my first year in China, I reread them all again because it was Mm -hmm. a a nice sort of um, thing to immerse myself in when I was uh, head over heels in a very different um, country. So I I really like those. But for me, they're sort of just entertainment because they don't have the dark well they are dark but it's a very realistic kind of um darkness i suppose they don't have that strangeness and craziness that would mark them as a favorite but yeah i think they're they're very fun and a bit like the world of chinese literature they're a massive they have a massive expanse there's just so much going on if you don't like one character there's probably another character you like or another 12 characters you like you like so yeah, it's yeah. Got a scale that, that I like. Hmm. So what's your best kind of darkness and craziness? Um, I don't know if it would necessarily be something from Chinese lit necessarily, but that a lot of what I read because of this podcast is Chinese lit. Um, so probably two I would name, hmm, the Chinese author I'd name off the top of my head who writes the sort of thing I really like is Han Song, the sci-fi writer, because he um he's not trying to do hard sci-fi that's exploring like physics or technology in a realistic way he clearly has quite a dark and pessimistic imagination but he uses it in such a way to create like uh, i've i keep failing to find the right words to describe it like but um scenarios and situations and places and ideas that are sort of dark and somber and foreboding and strange but also have a kind of weird beauty to them um and something about that there was lots of word i did an episode on his book hospital at eun that recently Mm -hmm. got translated in english and i think over that very long interview we landed on some of the right words to describe that strange feeling but there i can't find them now but yeah Hmm. i don't think i've ever read his book yeah he has quite a lot of short stories that you could um, look into, but something that I gives you a glimpse of a world beyond our own world, even if it's a horrible other world, the fact that you can get to that through your imagination, through fiction, is great. Mm-hmm. And to go take it back to Hono Mong, I do kind of get the feeling that our main character, uh, Jia, Bao Yu, and yeah. maybe, maybe um, Lin Dayu, his 
tragic lover do they're from this other in their case better spiritual world but they're trapped here on on earth and that i don't know i find something kind of moving about that that side of this novel you're doing mm-hmm. a good good job interviewing me <laughs> <laughs> let you talk well yeah yeah so i can take us to the the next section maybe we which sure. is introducing the book um on Lomong, also known as Shitoji, so Dream of the Red Chamber or Story of the Stone. There's lots yep. of different ways you can translate On Lomong. I love Dream of the Red Chamber. It sounds so, um, I don't know, mysterious and rich and elegant. So that's that's what I'll use. But Hong Lomong, yeah. just using Hong Lomong might be easier. Um, I've already named the two main characters and their doomed uh, love affair. Love, mm-hmm. Calling it a love affair seems weird because they're very young. They're like preteens, right? Like 12 or 13. Yeah. Well, the right time. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for the older times, people to develop romantic feelings and even yeah. to get married. Yeah. Right. Yes. Different kinds of things went right. Yeah. They would have gotten married in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the this this is a novel written in the Qing dynasty, right? The 1700s. Allegedly, that's where most scholars would agree on that was written by a late Qing scholar, Cao Xueqing. But yeah, there are controversial views claiming that it was not even by Cao Xueqing and Cao Xueqing does exist. And it was by some other scholar. Um, but mostly people would think, would determine that Cao Xueqing as uh, the author of the book and he lived in the Qing dynasties. Right, yeah. I know famously there's a final, is it the final third of the book? Final 40 chapters? Yes. That are yeah. possibly by his editors or by someone else after he died. That's that's how it goes, right? Yes, exactly. Um. Oh, yeah, you can definitely tell that from just the quality of the reading. Um, it, there's no question that those 40 chapters were added, were supplemented by someone who read the book and wanted to finish the book for whatever reason, just to give it an ending. Yeah. And it's interesting, uh, Hong Lomong is such a book that you, you would tell how it would end from the beginning, from the way the author wrote the book. Um, it's a book that foretells itself, but... Also, interestingly, it's a book that's very hard to complete by another person. Um, you mentioned science fiction being your favorite, and I like that school of art um, literature quite a lot, too. So there there are a lot of cross-writing going on in that science fi or fantasy world. Uh, for example, I forgot the series. You know, there was a series that was going on forever and ever. It's called something like World something. The or time wheel of time the wheel of time yeah um i remember something like its author includes more than one and 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 the wife of the dead original author wanted somebody else to write to finish the book and something like that and it was also popular um, but it w- would be impossible for i mean it is impossible for Mong even though many people tried that um, and, and the main, there are versions of the supplements 
um, published and, and being received by a wide population of readers, but being a critical reader of Hong Meng, he would never accept those chapters. I, I've tried reading them as a child because I wanted an ending to my stories and I could not even go through uh, two chapters of that. It's just like the characters have changed their faces. They have changed their tone. It's, it, it, they have become people I don't recognize. So I, I refuse to read the chapters that were added by other people. I'd rather it ended so abruptly <laughs> with my heart always hanging in the air. I, I rather that and then just gave myself a half-hearted, half-cooked ending. Yeah, it's it's funny how often things like that can happen to all sorts of fiction. I guess it can happen a lot in literature because a novel is, right. it takes an awful long time to make and it's, the, all the stuff is very locked into the, the head of one person. The I, I did a little Google check. So yeah, the Wheel of Time series, there are, um, there was originally supposed to be six books and it's it reached yeah. 14 volumes. The author Robert Jordan passed away before they were finished. Yeah. My wife, like you said, took custody of the series and uh, still living and I think not so old um, fantasy mm-hmm. author Brandon, Brandon Sanderson finished them. And it's, it's yeah. funny, you mentioned uh, the Song of Ice and Fire books earlier. A lot of people think that something like that's going to happen uh, unless George R. R. Martin, the author, lives <clears throat> lives for a long time because he's got two more to do and it's taking forever. The the example yeah. that I feel very similar to you, something I wouldn't touch, um, even if it gave me an ending, was um, the English author Douglas Adams. He had a series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, sort of a comedy sci-fi mm-hmm. series that started in the 80s. And he did finish it. He wrote five of them and then the final one the final one is like a very sort of gloomy dark book it seems like he was what maybe psychologically in a darker place or something it's very Mm -hmm. pessimistic and it ends it ends with all our favorite characters they meet up just in time to be on the earth when the earth gets uh, finally destroyed in every possible dimension ever and that's it that's the end of the series um but just i don't know maybe in the last decade or something it's quite a long time ago now, but long after Douglas yeah. Adams died, he died in his 40s or something. Um, mm-hmm. A young adult author whose books I was reading when I was a teenager wrote like the this, this sixth book in the series. And I didn't want to have any sort of um, hateful feelings towards the publisher and the yeah. author for, for continuing that series, but it just felt sort of wrong. Like, okay, it, it might be nice to bring back our favorite characters, but come on, like, surely they died with when, when Douglas Adams died. Like, just let them rest. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see that. What I want to stress is an interesting mythical phenomenon about this book. So this book, um, we're talking about the Red Chamber, mm. Holomo has all the answers in your hands already if you want to. Uh, finish it if you want to complete the writing um, to to add the detail to the book. Yet nobody can do it right. Um, for a lot of other books, I don't think you know where these um, characters will end. Um, if the 
the original author device it right, um, device the plot right. You have to follow the book to see where everything is going to see how everybody ends. But you know how everybody ends from the beginning of this, from the beginning of reading this book, The Red Chamber. It's it's like you have all the answers, you have all the fortune telling in your hands already, but you cannot do it right. Um, that's just how how well it was done, the writing, and, and how that life is just hard to be grasped and understood and retold. Um, all those characters, uh, they were probably characters, family members, people that the author Cao Xueqing have closely observed for years. Um, and being a person of such um, such wisdom or, or intelligence, uh, he he was probably the only one ever lived qualified to describe the lives of those characters. If you give this job to another person, that person knows where everybody ends and knows how the story would go, but he cannot replicate the words, the tones, the thoughts, the acts of these characters because he never lived with them. Um, and, and those characters were not like characters you can find on the street. Those characters were aristocrats. Um, sorry for being a little bit pretentious. They are uh, they're aristocrats. They are of noble families. Um, so you have to be a person out of noble family in that time, um, living with them for years to write about them. And you yourself cannot be... An, even you can, it's not enough for you to be a person of the period, um, for for you to be an old classic Chinese aristocrat. You have to be an aristocrat who has some romantic feelings about the times. You have to be a scholarly person. You have to be a person who has acute sense of the times and observations to write about those characters. So to fit all these requirements, um, it's just impossible to find someone that can finish his thoughts. Henceforth, you have all the answers, you have all the clues, but you cannot do it right. I mean, anybody. Yeah. So you're saying Cao Xuechen is, when he was writing this one, he was using mm. basically his own life, his own immediate reality as the source. But anyone who tries to complete the story will be using the yeah. text as the source. And you're creating... Yeah, right. Like, you know, it's a box within a box. It has to be smaller than the box it's inside, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning how the, the, the book gives you lots of clues about what to expect. Maybe mm -hmm. we can use that as a way to introduce sort of how the story is um, set up. I'm skipping, skipping a question, my list of questions slightly, but I think it's a good way to introduce the story. So I'll, I'll maybe give this one a go. And then if you feel I've missed anything crucial, uh, you can, you can correct me or fill it in. Sure. So we start with um, the sort of, now I'm not so familiar with, with them, um, with uh, Chinese mythology, but the instigating mm -hmm. event is the mending of the heavens by the goddess Nuwa. So yeah. Doesn't sound like the start of a realist novel, but we do get there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a in when her, as she's doing her job, there's a sentient stone that wants to experience the sort of um, what it's like to be in the earthly world and, mm -hmm. and alive. And that stone has 
I'm unclear on the like whether at what point it takes a human shape, but it has some uh, like visions and experiences before entering the world, and lots of those are sort of coded implications or predictions of things that are going to happen uh, to yeah. the people, to either to to this stone once it becomes a, a human being, and the people around it. Um, mm. it. Along the way, we meet in this sort of intro part of the book. We meet a Buddhist and a Taoist monk who go wandering together. And when I was mm. reading that as someone learning about the basics of Chinese history and culture, I thought that was so cool because obviously in, well, maybe not necessarily obviously, but in European history, you don't get many instances where two devotees of two different religions are best pals <laughs> who have jokes together and walk around like a, a Christian and a Muslim or something. I'm sure it happened. But, you know, to see it in, in the Chinese literature, for me, I thought that was very, really cool. But anyway, they, they are in the mix there as well. And I think we encounter them in the mm. earthly plane later as well, which is very fun, I think. Uh, so anyway, this stone is born as a boy called Jia Baoyu. He's yeah. growing up in a rich and powerful but declining family, the Jazz. Yes. Um, mm. And in the most of the novel takes place in their big like family compound home or in their lovely sort of poetry garden that is built at some point in the story yeah. oh, taking a breath here um <laughs> and the family drama is the main sort of thing that keeps the plot moving forward it's exactly. like one of these big Ming Ching novels it's very episodic it's got lots of short-ish chapters that are sort of episodic True. but there is a continuing plot um one yeah. of the one of the continuing strands is Jabao's conflict with his father he has a very the head of the family mm -hmm. is this very conventional masculine confucian patriarchal figure but exactly. Baoyu is he's like a he's like a soft sad boy um and Ooh. he's interested in reading poetry rather than the confucian classics and he's falls in love with his cousin who is similarly not a sort of uh, conservative role, conventional role model. She's a little bit sickly and is also interested in these sort of romantic ideas. And she's called Lin Dai Yu. The Yu at the end of their names is the same Yu. It's the word for Jade. Yeah. That's significant. Uh, but a love triangle forms because he's lined up to marry another one of his cousins. Yeah. Oh dear, I've forgotten her name. Something Bao Chai. Bao Chai. Right? Yeah. Chai. Yep. And that's and it all and it all ends in tragedy. I'm <laughs> summarizing dozens and dozens of chapters there, but it, it as far as as far as we can tell, it's not going to end happily. And in, in those <laughs> 40 extra chapters, that's how it turns yep. out. Do you think there's anything I've skipped over or slightly misrepresented there we should also describe? Not really. You summarized it well. I think nice. I would, I wouldn't have done a better job. I would probably have gone astray into some details. Yeah, you've summarized it just very well. But the book itself goes astray into other details quite a lot, if I remember right. Yeah, I guess that's probably why it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I often prefer not to read really big novels because I I'm trying to fit in as many books as I can every year or every month. But if it's one you really love, then if it's mega long, it's perfect because mm -hmm. you can get lost in it. Totally. I think I've loved many other books, but there has never been a book that's like Polo Monk. It doesn't have a cliffhanger. 
kind of plot line to it. Uh, you know how everybody's going to end. Like I said, it, the fate is decided from the beginning, and it, it kept being told by the author again and again, as if he's just trying to throw it in your face. The person, the character, the heroines you're loving aren't going to die a tragic death, and are going to die in their early uh, teens and 20s. And, and no matter how well they fight the life, they're not never going to win. He kept throwing that to your face, but you still love reading it. And from whatever chapter I picked it up, uh, I would get lost in the story, in the characters, mainly in how they act, um, the way they talk, whatever interactions, very um, sometimes very plain interactions between them. There's no tragic, legendary stories um, twists in those in 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 those descriptions in those chapters, but you still get lost in them. Um, it's very mystical, I think. Mm. And speaking of mystical stuff, if 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 we imagine if the magical sort of start of the story with the stones and the monks, and there are some. Uh, Xian mm -hmm. immortals, or in the original trans, the old translation I read, the Xian was translated to fairy, which is a yeah kind of a stupid but also quite fun uh, way to translate the word. If we take out all the yeah. magical stuff, um, do you think the novel still works? Oh, totally. Actually, that's what I wanted to touch on. Uh, the magical stuff is not really essential and central to the plot lines or the development of characters, you can totally get rid of them and still have a very complete dream of Red Chamber and you don't even need them. Um, the way I see it, I think it got concurred on by a lot of uh, dream of Red Chamber scholars is those mystical stuff, which is not what I meant when I said it. What I said was like magical, was phenomenal. Um, but, mm. but here, um, if you meant it as magical and and even superstitious and and surreal stuff, um, the things were added by Cao Shuqing, in my opinion, to cover it up, to cover the real theme that he wanted to write. Um, he was trying to avoid the witch hunting, literature witch hunting that, that were happening in that time. Uh, you know, Chen was a time, was a dynasty uh, where the dominant fi political figures were, it was ruled by foreign tribes other than Han, like the dominant, the local tribes. Um, Han was considered as the backbone of Chinese peoples. Uh, well, back in that time, nowadays, uh, we're doing a better job getting mixed together, all big family and all that. Um, but back then, it was there's big distinctions between Han and other tribes. And Qing is a time, one of the rare dynasties uh, where Han people were ruled by foreign tribes, um, tribes that are Manzu. Um, mm -hmm. Now, they are part of Chinese peoples, but back then, they were not. So... Um, and and as um, what, what do you call it? Small minority ruler um, to rule a bigger population than your own people, and they have to use suppression. So if you, there's any indication in your poetry in your literature that you are reminiscing about the older times, the Ming Dynasty, and yeah, definitely you will get locked up, get killed, got decapitated. Um, so. 
if um so Cao Shiqing, I think he was not giving a very positive tone to to the fate of this dynasty, um, along with the families, families goings. Um, so he had to cover it up. He he cannot be he cannot afford the risk of being understood as fortune telling the dynasty itself. So he used a lot of mystic, mystical writings and legends to cover it up, so, like to put the characters into such ethereal destines. For example, Dairi being a small of plants that were watered by Bao Yu's um, prior being, which is an immortal Shen Ying Shi Zhuo, um, and, and, and being this immortal, and he watered this plant. So the plants reincarnated herself to become a beautiful uh, young woman to pay back the feelings, to pay back th this favor. Um, and he said, you know, I owe you water, so I'll pay you back with my tears. And it, it turned out that was his, her life because of her love and her insecurity for Bao Yu. Um, she was crying all the time. And that was that that makes the story very ethereal, surreal. But you don't really need that, actually. Um, for most of the time of your reading, your pleasure doesn't come from knowing, OK, there they were actually two immortals in in the sky. Um, in the celestial court so i mean as a child maybe you you think about that all the time you think about that but growing up um you don't need that um so you start to see that as like a wrap of this real story of the real thoughts behind um that mystical part i think it was just a political what's the word facade right there's a Half a sentence he said there um, that I think could describe a lot of Chinese writers. I can't afford the risk of being understood. That's got to be true for a lot of writers through different parts of Chinese yeah. history. I think That's it's, right. Um, yeah, it's one reason yeah. I think, one possible reason why I like Han Song's writing so much. Um, it is extremely open to, to interpretation and very strange. And maybe part of that is it's a way to get through darker, stranger things. Um I, I'm mm. going to um, return to you talking about the fact that the Qing dynasty was the, was a Manchu dynasty. So I guess the only right. two big ones where the Han weren't the ruling dynasty would be Qing mm. and the Yuan. Yuan was the Mongols they yes. were in charge. And then we had the Ming, so mm. the Han are back in charge. And then the Qing is this a special dynasty because... Well, 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 the the Manchu take over there. They have similar origins to the Mongols, so that doesn't make it sure. really distinct. I think, I guess, the thing that makes the Qing really distinct is it's the last dynasty. It's um where the, yes. the old dynastic system finally goes into decline. And when I read yeah. this book, I guess I didn't my knowledge of the different centuries of Chinese history wasn't so great. So I was thinking possibly is the setting of this book. At the at the time when the Qing are sort of on their way out and um, Imperial China is starting to really get you know either left behind or realize that there are powers out there that are coming that are a lot more scary than than um, the Manchu. But I realize now if it's the seventeen hundreds, the Qing are still 
pretty safe. And I don't know if they're really in decline at this point because the, the Jia family are definitely in decline. But do you think that Cao uh, Xuechen was trying to make any point about the sort of, not just the repression in society, but a, a decline in, in the overall mm-hmm. Chinese society? Or do you think that's a misreading by me? I think you're right. You even reminded myself to correct myself. I said he lived in late Qing. So historically, that's not right. Um, he lived in the middle part of Qing dynasty. So if um, things about his life, Cao Xueqing's life, were rightly told, um, if what we now understood were right, then he was living in the times of Qianlong. Um, and Qianlong was definitely not on the declining part, not on the down road of his dynasty. He was just, he was having his, around his ruling and people call that sheng shi, right? The most prosperous times of that dynasty. Um, so it's like the climax. Um, even though at the climax, people who are very negative about how everything is going to end, um, people who call all good things will come to an end, um, might see a definite bad ending for everything. But other than that, they are definitely not declining. So you're right. Why? I mean, this is a question I would pose to myself now. Um, why? How did he see? Because definitely from his writing, you could see everything is going to end badly. And how he saw that, I don't know. It, it seems like he, he had some cross-the-time transcendent view. Mm. Um, like, yeah, a prophetic a sense with him you just you can sense that you can see that you cannot fight that reading his book and it was concurred i mean it was affirmed by history in as Qing became the last dynasty um and even the times the feudal times the dynastic times were ended by people by revolutions mm. i'm sure i've read in um, I think possibly the first and only real big history book of all Chinese history I read, or maybe somewhere, maybe somewhere else, that although some of this, you know, imperial China was maybe at its largest during parts of the Qing, and that lots of the Qing, yeah, Qing dynasty, exactly, was a, it was a long, quite a long dynasty. It had some real high yes. points, but the argument mm-hmm. the historian made, if I remember it rightly, was that the I think you might have said partly in the Ming as well, but then especially in the Qing, um, I guess perhaps as a way to survive, like you said, the man, the ruling Manchu became very hardline and mm-hmm. suppressive, but maybe also yeah. became a bit more closed off to progress, change, outside ideas. And the argument the historian was making is that it's that sort of um, shutting off from change and outside influence that made it impossible to keep up when mm-hmm. you know the western powers i guess largely in japan who were much more progress change reform technology minded arrived and just couldn't be couldn't be beaten by a more sort of still feudal society that was his argument that basically it was even in the good times mm-hmm. that problem was there and it was going to eventually cause the cause the collapse so i don't know how you could possibly tie that with Tao Xue Qin, other than just a, rep- a repressive conservative society 
doesn't make for good things in the long run, even if it can pr- provide some temporary uh, security. I'm not trying to get yeah. political here. <laughs> but um, Oh, no, no, no. Um, it, it's just got me thinking. Um, I think I can answer my own question a little bit it's through your talking. Tao Shiqing probably did not see that far. I mean, being a person living in a closed times, he, I don't think he can imagine the benefits of being open to the world and, and having communications and trade uh, very frequently with the outside world. Um, things like that don't happen very often for Chinese dynastic times anyway, uh, maybe for Tang and, and Han, there were quite a lot of trades going on the Silk Road. Um, but for Chinese people, because we're big enough and, and we are complicated, we have long histories, we have such uh, a blooming civilization, Chinese people tend to be, um, I would proudly say arrogant because we don't really need that much outside input in a sense. So, and that had definitely, I mean, I'm saying that in a loving way, um, uh, but it, it there's definitely some disbenefits to it. So you don't get to enjoy the progress of the, how the entire world, like this, this industrialization that was going on at the same time in the West. Um, so we didn't keep up with that. So my, my point being, Cao Xueqing probably didn't, if he's thinking the way that I'm thinking and being all Chinese, he's probably, he was probably not really seeing it in that way. Like, oh, my country is so closed up um, and the rulers are so insecure about the peoples who might any day uh, go up against them. Um, that's why they're so close. But he, he was writing about how the bureaucracy, how the rulers, how the courts, how the upper class were doing. And from the way he writes, um, if they continue acting that way, there's definitely going to be a bad end to it. Um, it started with the the fate of Xiangling, the, the, the girl who got t- taken away by, um, captured by people who, who's like slaver, slavers. Um, and that, that was allowed when it could be corrected, when this bad fate could be corrected, even by a person who had been uh, receiving favors from her parents. And that person being a bureaucrat of the Qing dynasty, and he chose to ignore this. He chose not to pay back the, the good favors, not to pay back his beneficiary, um, his benefactors. And he chose to let it go, let the criminal go. Um, because he was trying to save his own life, save his own career, political career. You see from all these how how common that is and how that person becoming the central introductory figure of this whole story, you can understand Cao Xueqing is, is actually trying to depict the whole society of, of that time. Um, if a society is composed of bureaucrats like that, that society is doomed. It there's no good ending to anyone living in that society, no matter how hard you are, warrior of life. Yeah, warriors and bureaucrats, not not the best of friends. Often, one thing I <laughs> remember about um, Hong Lomong is that very often 
the the women are having a harder time than the men. It's it's definitely a, a picture of a society that will punish anyone who doesn't fit, you know, a square peg in a round hole. But it's especially a society that is very harsh on 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 women. And I got a reminder yeah. of that reading a similar, even like a spiritual sort of successor, maybe um Bajin's mm-hmm. family, Jia, which is shorter. <laughs> so I remember it better. Um, but in that one, I think he really goes out of his way to show concern for the female members of this big family who, if you know, their interests and their needs are not their human needs are secondary to the needs of the family and to conventions and to like uh, the needs yeah. of the, the patriarchs. Um, I remember a girl who commits suicide does so because she's going to be married off as a concubine. So it's not even just some necessary sacrifice to benefit family or society it's a pointless sacrifice that only benefits like the pleasure of an older man so it's kind of gross um so yeah i before yeah before i was going to ask i had a question about the version of um of love that appears in the story Mm -hmm. but we could also think about like the concern for the lives of women that tell shed chin Seems, seems to display both in the way they suffer as well as like the just everyday realistic concerns of their lives i'm not a woman but you are maybe, and you love the book more than i do yeah. maybe you have some thoughts on that oh yeah you um definitely b- brought me back i went astray again um actually that is the main point of Tao Xueqing. Tao Xueqing was quite clear about that he was very uh, open and and apparent about that he said that he in that first few chapters of miss mythical writings he was saying that um through the the mouth of that stone and Bao Yu, that he had experienced Jia Bao Yu had experienced in his life quite a few legendary women um only those women's lives and the, these women's thoughts, words, acts were worth writing about. And this book is going to about, be about them. And this is very revolutionary even because there were never um, a book except those books that were written by men trying to pleasure themselves um, about how women being beautiful and in benefactors to those poor scholars that were trying to make a life in court Apart from those, um, I would call old trash novels, women were never the central figures of any classical writings, um, any major big uh, deals. But this book is about them. And and this book is very open about his intentions. Yes, I'm going to write about a few women. And these women didn't, win a war or build a country or uh, make kings um but there's these women being so ordinary quote quote um their lives are worth writing about and their lives form such contrast to that bureaucrat that i mentioned the bureaucrat that chose to not do his job chose not even to pay back his benefactors who um, put him in his position Uh, he and and such a contrast is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I remember another thing I remember about the book uh, is that as well as sort of um, the concerns women have, their competency is um, 
you know it's paid attention to so although the big leader right. of the family is uh Baoyu's dad um I yeah. remember there's at least one or two one or maybe two grandma figures like grandma I, f- I forget her name but grandma Jia is one mm-hmm. of like the powerful figures in the family who can order others around I remember right. that and I I also remember that when Bao Yu is having all his fun with poetry he's having his fun mm-hmm. with poetry with other younger people and it's yeah. often or mostly it's the girls his peers and they're right. all equals in poetry um although I, as far as I'm aware the the literati and writers the Wen Ren I guess of of dynastic China were it's all men but in this one even if say mm-hmm. Lin Dayu can't be some big name scholar writing poetry for the emperor. Yeah. She's got all the ability that the boys have and maybe even more. And I don't know, I don't know if that's an exceptional thing. It's it felt like one when I was reading it. That is exceptional. And it's even more exceptional that it's being written about. It's being recorded by Cao Xuqing. And Cao Xuqing noticed that. Hmm. It, I mean other scholars might might enjoy the fact that their wives or their sisters being such such successful poets, um, but only he noticed how strange that is, and he wrote about it to to bring it into people's attention. Um, I don't know how to, how I put this. You know, Chinese has the 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 older times of China has a very intricate, exquisite system of philosophical system of patriarchy. Um, patriarchy in the West and in the Middle East is rather brute in comparison to the system in China. I mean, I'm not com- I'm not complimenting patriarchy. The the Chinese patriarchs um, have very lovely robes that it's hard to imagine a European <laughs> king wearing. You know, the the more fashion robes. sense. Yeah, like the Chinese. Exactly. Like the, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's so woven with. Um, complete system of logic and ideas and, and ideology. So it's really hard for women to get out of that web of thoughts. Men suppressing women, um, I think a lot of times in the West, as I noticed from my life there and, and my hobby of watching a lot of drama, is it seems like a lot of it is just by default. It's not like men had a thought system telling women why you're supposed to be suppressed, why you're supposed to be put in your position in place, why you're supposed to be lower than me. A lot of times it's just by default and it's just after the facts, like man took power, men became kings. Um, I want my women to be subservient to me. But in China, in older China, it was different. There's a whole system to it. You. Mm. You have to receive the teachings about why you are lower than men uh, as women uh, and, and the reason behind it. And there's a whole school uh, of thoughts about it. And you have to learn about it as women. So and there are mor- morality standards. There are books on women's moralities. Women have different ethic systems than men. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, it's quite interesting academically. And there are so many books that can be written on it. Uh, I don't. I don't know if Western older 
I mean, in the older times, Western men have gone to such depths and lengths to write about why women should be subservient to men. But、mm, in the I, older times of China, yeah, I can、did. try try to f-、uh, fly the the <laughs> the Western flag for evil patriarchy.、Um, I think definitely in Christianity, it's there. Maybe that's not a philosophical system, but you know.、Mm. It just—I guess—it would basically go right back to the story of the Garden of Eden, which isn't—you know—that's not just Christianity. That's all of the three Abrahamic、right. religions.、Mm-hmm. But in there, you have the woman as the easily led temptress. Not、mm-hmm. that one little story about an apple and a snake should justify、um, half of the half of the human race being dominant over the other. But there's there's something there.、Um, yeah. But like prior to Christianity taking over Europe. I do. I vaguely recall some some things in like hearing hearing about some things in Greek philosophy or thought that you know present the man as the sort of、uh, rational agent who should have the right to have decisions, and that. But then I don't. I can't think how those philosophers characterized women. I think you're right that it's more that they're just not talked about at all. Like the 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 funny funny thing you learn. When you're learning about、mm-hmm. the origin of the idea of democracy, is that it's this wonderful idea from Athens that the ordinary people、um, should have a say in how the city or the state is run, rather than one king or something. But of course, the reality is who the ordinary people are. The citizens excludes all the slaves,、uh, all the women,、yeah. and、mm-hmm. possibly anyone without like property or wealth. But certainly, even. Once you've taken all the slaves and all the women, you are left、mm. with a small minority who are considered to be like the real people. <laughs> so I think you're right. Like there's some sort of default unspoken thinking, although、right. maybe perhaps because of a lack of a like a s- philosophical system to exclude women is maybe why through European history you get quite a reasonable number of queens as well as kings being the sort of number one leaders. But I'm now、mm-hmm. just talking out my ass, so I don't know. But it's an interesting thought for sure. I do I, one other thing about that. I remember I read、um, the Analects, you know, the the main Confucian book on how to be a gentleman. And okay. Yeah, I was kind of expecting it to be a very sort of mean authoritarian book with all these rules about what you must do and who you must keep in line, because that was my understanding of Confucianism. Confucianism. But I was kind of surprised that a lot of it was just rules about how to be like a nice, civilized gentleman.、Um, so it was, it was sort of、uh, like you said, exquisite. It seemed all seemed very gentle. I had to remind myself that it was underpinning like a patriarchal system. I did notice that there was very few mentions of women in the Analects. I guess that those those points maybe come up in other philosophical texts. But just to say that, yeah, it was. It seemed a very soft. Vision of what a gentleman should be, and that all the more harsh stuff about controlling, you know, the opposite sex or the people below you, sort of unspoken was went sort of unspoken as well, at least in that book. True.、Um, I think you you're quite keen at capturing the difference、uh, or capturing what I said. The、um, Confucius Confucian, what was the word for Confucianism? it? Confucianism, right? Confucianism. Confucianism definitely doesn't doesn't implore people to become brute.、Um, he, there are the notion of gentlemen in 
Chinese history and Chinese culture. Um, and men are definitely not taught to treat women badly, for sure. So that kind of covered up um, the underneath patriarchy, the very, very strict patriarchy, the totally justified patriarchy um, in China. So from the surface, you would think that um, ideally, if men are all gentlemen, then women would never have a bad life to lead. Um, but things that were never under were, were never realized was women never got a chance to be their own person, to live a life of their dreams, to be seen, to lead, to rule the society, uh, to build anything, to make any real contributions. The reason that in Cao Xuqing's eyes, those women's lives were worth writing about were, were exactly because they were not making valid contributions to the to 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 the backbone of the society. There were women that were young and they were worry free. They were not bothered by any worldly ambitions. Um, so they were just having a very pure passion for life, uh, which is crystallized by their education because they can write poetry, they can paint, um, they can weave embroideries. Their whole life is about making beauty, beautiful things. So their whole life is such is as is as aesthetic forms, and that's why Cao Xueqing and Jia Baoyi praise about them. And it's because they were untainted; they they cannot be tainted. They don't have any real life responsibilities. Once they take on res responsibilities as married women and mothers, they start to care about where money comes from, um, how to keep their husband's political positions secure, um, how to, you know, have power struggles with their with their family members, like um, the wives of their brothers. Um, and they started to become tainted and not that beautiful, not that pure. And Jia Baoyi had a metaphor for that. Jia Baoyi said, women, before they met a man and get married, they were precious jades they were precious stones but once they got married that stones start to lose its colors starts to lose its shine and after they got kids and become old they're not stone precious stones anymore they are just eyes of dead fish oh, um, yeah so his aesthetics reflect something deeper um i think besides that those, li those lives of women never really had any real contributions to the society, um, not society, to, what's the word? Civilization? To, to civilization? Because, yeah, exactly. Um, they definitely have contributions to their families, uh, to themselves, but they don't, when they are worry free, of course, they're beautiful, they're pure, they're light, um, they're, they are aloft. And, and the man that, um, but the things that sometimes I, I speak in in this view of, I put myself in the shoes of Cao Xueqing, sometimes I have to be critical about him too. Um, so what he sees for men are the men, although you could call them leading a responsible life and, and they're keeping the family, they're feeding the family, actually they're they're um, useless and, and it, somewhat 
if they're not useless, they're only doing things for themselves. Um, it, it seems on the surface, they're being bureaucrats, they're leading society and all that, but they're, everything they do was for themselves, uh, was to cover their own butts. And, and there was nothing that they do for the public good, although they're public servants, so-and-so, uh, so-called bureaucrats. Um, so you could understand why Bao Yu hates interacting with men, um, especially those men, those men that were just from morning to dawn trying to fight for their political positions. And, and political positions for what? For their own fame, for their own money and benefits, um, for their own security and, and not for anybody else. And not as they claimed in their writing that they were doing this for for the royalty or for, for the people. And in comparison to those men, women were such pure angelic figures, especially before they got married. Right. Yes, that does make a lot of a lot of sense. I can say having I, I think some of this is eternally relevant or it feels relevant to me having grown up as a boy in a well in in the human world and in a world that is still patriarchal but if if i i would say not that i'm a mega sensitive boy with no traditional masculine qualities i'm well, i'm certainly not a boy anymore i'm 30 but um it can be a little bit hard um especially as you get older if you are a little bit more sensitive or just not a tough young man because i think probably in most societies still you're expected to be i don't know a bit tougher or rougher as a, mm. as a man as you get older but not everyone can be because everyone everyone is is naturally a little bit different. It could be down to yeah. how you were raised. It could be down to just mm-hmm. your natural temperament, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think a thing that is pretty true about I can't I can't speak for women, but I do think for 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 men, we hear about I don't, I don't know about in China, but certainly in the UK and in the West, you often hear people talking about the importance of male role models, and sometimes that can be used in a very conservative way, saying um boys need you know traditional tough men as role models to make sure they grow up right i do not Mm -hmm. agree with that that's that's just far too like right wing for me but i think Mm -hmm. it is a challenge to find a role model that fits the kind of man you want to grow up to be and maybe you could just say that generally for all people male female Mm -hmm. whatever we all need some kind of a role model but the patriarchal society does create a template for a kind of man um, that is like the mainstream person most boys mm-hmm. are expected to grow up to be and if you mm-hmm. find that to be disappointing then it can be quite easy to become disillusioned well I'm speaking about for myself here mm-hmm. to become disillusioned and suspicious of most ordinary men that you meet like I shielded myself from the more <laughs> harsh tough men by doing going into literature for my uh, degree mm-hmm. You don't meet mm-hmm. all that many scary men in the world of literature or editing that I work in now. And I find if I meet someone who has a more, say, technical or even like uh, even like working class background, if they do more work with their hands and they appear mm-hmm. to be more masculine, mm-hmm. I have this like built in suspicion as a more sort of um, Bao Yu style guy. And yeah, it's it's harsh because that division is sort of created by society rather than a nasty suspicious thing in me and part of for me part of becoming a man is accepting that 
there are different ways of being a man. I'm really, I'm really gone off track mm -hmm. here, but I think you, a problem that Bao Yu has is that, or maybe a, and a problem maybe that Cao Shui Qin had is that the ways of being a man that are presented to him don't really match who he is as a person. And yeah, like you said, maybe that's led him to idealize women who he seems, Bao Yu seems to be more comfortable around. Yeah, well, I never saw it that way. Um, I mean, probably a little bit in my subconsciousness, but I didn't put it right um, as as well as you did. That that did give me quite a quite an inspiration. He, Bao Yu was unlike any other man in his times, and in among those that were written by Cao Xueqing, he was quite out, outstanding, and he 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 did have a more better sense, uh, omega sense kind of, I don't know if I'm using the right word. I think I picked that up from other net citizens. Like he had a softer side um, in comparison to other quote, quote, masculine men. I mean, in China, we don't stress masculinity as, you know, brute and, and very uh, good at being good at one's hands and very beastly, that kind of manly figure we don't stress that um it's very interesting in china mm. chinese are always very very um emphatic on being civil and even softer for men henceforth if you're like a warrior type you're a very physical type um it gets passed over uh, it's not considered the the superior type of men and uh, the mm. superior type of men are always those who are scholarly who are very civil very polite um and and Bao Yu is like even to the extremes um polite and and scholarly and and soft and the thing that distincts him from other men is not just this is that he is in in his idealization he's also very pure and he doesn't worry about anything that are real and practical and worldly he doesn't worry about the in income of his family if he's gonna going to go to ruins tomorrow so what he's enjoying today mm -hmm. um and he doesn't want to take the scholarly exam to become to become the court official i mean and court official because that was the only way for a Chinese man to climb the ladder, which is to take the exam, to, to become a scholar, take the exam and pass the court exam and become an official. And so uh, exams is like our thing. Uh, he doesn't do that. He doesn't study for that. He studied for his own interests. He studied mm -hmm. poetry. He read books just for his own pleasure. Uh, he doesn't prepare for that exam at all. So that's what majorly distincts him from other people but yes there is some allow me to say effeminate disposition to him for sure yeah. but that that was also fitting for the aesthetics of that times in, in that time i noticed i was commenting to my viewers that i noticed that men and women if they are more on the effeminate side uh, effeminate, effeminate is not a very flattering word if fe fem feminine is better than effeminate softer yeah. side Softer, gentler, maybe. Oh, okay, sorry. Gentler, sorry. exactly. So, yeah. yeah, when they're on the gentler side, uh, they're more appreciated. They're more preferred. Men or women. But that was a side point. <laughs> that was a small point. It's okay. It's definitely sitting here in the West. It's hard to miss 
especially with 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 k-pop groups but when any like um looking at any pop star from like the east asian part of the world the difference in the how the male pop stars present themselves with over here is yeah it's it's hard to miss um and i remember thinking when i was sort of learning about chinese history that the sort of ideal man was a literary man i thought wow this is (laughs) this is wonderful if only i could have um could have grown up Loved in that like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I even I even yeah. quite like having the, the the long hair as well. I think I have one more thought to respond to what you said. You mentioned that Bao Yu, the thing that really makes him different, it's not just that he's gentle, because you know, it's not a society where the best way of being a man is being like a huge bodybuilder, like a warrior. Um <laughs> it's it's yeah, he's interested in from what I again, it's a long time since I read the book. He's mm-hmm. he's interested in sort of um he's got a more hedonistic live for the moment way of living, but it's not hedonism where like enjoy all the most delicious food, drink all the best yeah. uh, rice wine mm-hmm. or what or you know, whatever that I can. True. Um, or have lots of affairs with lots of different beauties or something. It seems to be more sort of higher pleasures like like poetry and conversation and stuff. And yeah, it's it's just it's an interesting interesting to see that depicted, especially in such a, a young man, like a, a twelve year old. The idea of uh, the average twelve year old boy that I've taught living that sort of life is hard to imagine. I guess the pleasures mm-hmm. most of us live for at that age are, are like video games and maybe our favorite sport or something. So yeah, it's an interesting yeah. depiction of an unusual boy <laughs> and his friends. That is true, but he is. Unlike Peter Pan, in that sense, he is not like he refused to grow up. It's it's almost like he has already sensed and seen, uh, seen through the nature of grown up men in his times. He despised them. He doesn't like them. He has his own philosophy of life. There were an episode where he got criticized by Bao Chai. Um, you know, in that love triangle, the older cousin that was also quite keen to marry him, uh, which is which he also liked back a little bit to some extent. Um, but when that girl, when that sensible girl criticized him for being not practical, for not pursuing any political careers, for not doing the studies right, um, he retorted back. He's like, well, please get out of my house if you are so intent on uh, making political man out of here because that's not what I'm for and you are not my you, you are not the person that knows me um you don't know me at all and in and he was also saying um if Lin Daiyu was here were here she would never have said things like that um she knew me and Lin Daiyu was outside the window trying to check if these two were developing some feelings and caught that conversation. And Lin Daoyu was like, wow, I've always known that I, um, we are soulmates and it's confirmed. We did know each other's souls. So to me, that confirmed my suspicion that it's not like they're being naive. They're being just rebellious to their authorities, like their um, parents' teachings and society. They, they know what they're doing and they know what kind of lives they want to lead. They know what other people are doing. They don't care about following their footsteps. They have their own life ideals in a sense. Yeah, that, that's what makes them different. Although, yeah, they're doomed to fail. 
That's quite inspiring. Um, your use of the word episodes reminded me of the next question I'd like to ask, just to keep us moving forward. Um, yes. So I remember when I would would tell um, uh, friends and colleagues and stuff in China that I was reading some some Chinese fiction. I was reading a translation of Dream mm-hmm. of the Red Chamber. I would ask, "Have you read it?" And some would say yes, but a, quite a common answer was, "Oh yeah, I I've seen it on TV. Um, I have a favorite yeah. TV adaptation." I'm not right. sure if there are as many film adaptations. I think the ones people would refer to were the TV shows, which would suit the the novel because it's so incredibly long. But obviously, yeah. well, it's not obvious. But I've never watched any Chinese TV series from start to finish. But obviously, many people from China or from Chinese culture grew up watching things like this and have a favorite. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any? <clears throat> have you watched any of these? TV and film adaptations. Do you have favorites? Just what what do you have to say about that sort of stuff? Oh, definitely. Um, there is a very good adaptation to TV, Hollow Moon. Uh, it was made in nineteen eighty. Um, so it was it's an old one. There has never been anything that surpassed that. So if you want to watch the TV adaptation, you would watch that one, and everybody would know. Which one you're referring to? Because there aren't that many TV adaptations. There might have been a film, but it was not quite mentioned that much.、Um, and there are two versions of TV series of Holomon. The earlier one is always recognized as the better one,、um, and there is a reason to that. I think because the TV director understood the book very well, and he took the time. In a in a time that was less, what's the word, market oriented, and he、mm. actually took the time to develop that series, and that was back then when your TV rating, when your works, uh, were not so much criticized and and rated by TV ratings, and now you cannot afford doing that, so you have to get viewers ratings up and all that, and that would kind of twist your. Hard for doing something artful, right?、Um, but back then, in the nineteen eighties,、um, all these major TV series they were directed, invested by the state,、um, and there is definitely a very good side. I think all good sides to it, because、um, for those classics, if you put it in the hands of someone that that's after market gains,、uh, they may not. The the odds are they may not get it right,、um, but When when the country, when the representatives, when the art representatives of the country are trying to doing a good interpretation of the classical works,、um, they really put in the effort, the time to do it right. I heard that the actors, the actresses, back then, they were trained for almost a year in in elegance, in the body forms, in the way they talk,、um, in Yeah, just things that you would consider as a, a necessary, realistic part of people who are living in that times as as noble people, as poetry people. So they had to gone through, they had to ha- have gone through like a year's training, just for being qualified to act and before acting, before actual acting.、Mm, that's that's interesting that it's the the magic ingredient to make a good adaptation is the.、Yeah. Involvement of a, of the state just to sort of protect it、right. from from the market.、Um, yeah. If there's an 
there's maybe arguably an equivalent here in the UK where we have the BBC, mm-hmm. which is it's a different yeah. sort of involvement with the state, but it's a similar um yeah not 100 percent, but it's protected from the market in in certain ways mm-hmm. and it's the bbc that fairly regularly will produce some kind of either a tv movie or a tv series mm-hmm. adaptation of british literary classics or sometimes foreign right. ones as well i believe it was bbc that did mm-hmm. a recent quite good adaptation of war and peace so obviously a russian novel not a british one but yeah the bbc mm-hmm. period war and peace. Mm-hmm. yeah BBC period dramas are quite famous for being well they're famous for consistently doing them and they're generally supposed to be a fairly high quality makes you wonder you know what if um I mean I don't know perhaps other channels here have had a go but I think that it seems true that um if it's something serious and if it has if it's tied Mm -hmm. in with like national ideas of the national literature like Charles Dickens for for England yeah yeah for example sort of makes sense Mm -hmm. to have the national organization working on it provided it's a it's a competent one thankfully the bbc is usually for these big projects it's competent yeah i like watching their dramas too (laughs) cool um continue a final question before we go to the more light-hearted section um so i was talking about like big important series um Mm -hmm. moving back to literature away from tv like it's interesting in stories like among they get mm-hmm. they can inform what we think is great literature because something I thought a few times when you were talking about yeah. um, the sort of non-brutal version of masculinity in Dream of the Red Chamber if you mm-hmm. compare this is one of the four four Chinese classic Mingxing novels the other three being um, Journey to the West Three Kingdoms yeah. and uh, right. Water Margin or Outlaws of the yeah. Marsh or however you want to name that in English, Shui Hu Zhuan. Um, those yeah. ones are like all three of them more, vi- more violent and more dominated by male characters. Yes. So probably most listeners know know all this, but I'll, I'll explain it for anyone who's not familiar. So Journey to the West, that's got a fantasy angle. We have several male, well, one human monk and a bunch of magical creatures go on mm-hmm. a very sort of uh, quest type story, the sort of thing you'll find all over human culture, like a magical quest um, over a great distance, a, a great journey. That's that story. And then right. Three Kingdoms, we have like a war epic, a uh, vast civil war, with the men all leading their different factions. And then with um, Shui Hu Zhuan, Water Margin, that's like a more, feels to me like a more sort of unique story i wouldn't even know how to categorize it because it's mm-hmm. follows a bunch of rebels or bandits who start yeah. their own little rebel society and are involved in a lot of fights and incidents mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. um and as far as i'm aware dream of the red chamber is often considered to be the one of like the most deep rich exquisite literary value but True. the others are considered to be great in their own ways as well so yeah um again you're, you're you're from China. You went up through that education system. You're interested mm-hmm. in the literature. Do you think that um, the nature of these four classics informs the idea of what is great literature in in Chinese lit? Yes, definitely. Um, especially the Dream of Red Chamber. I think the literary 
position of all the other three probably add up to equate the one of dream of red chamber there's just something unique about the dream of red chamber you know there's a school of academy that are composed of scholars that study the this book as their career so their entire career rests on studying this book that's um, uh, hong shui is that right exactly right. I, I was Your trying studies. to think of an yes an equivalent in other fields and in in the west uh, in other language literatures i couldn't find one i mean there the, are the, people the bible that would be it oh exactly exactly um so um that's just how important this book this novel is in china chinese history um, i often compare shakespeare to cao Xueqing, but people you, you don't have a school that totally devotes themselves and focus on shakespeare i mean you have scholars that have their emphasis of studies on Shakespeare. Um, but you don't have like whole shi, shi means, uh, what I don't know, like ology. Yeah, you don't a, have like retology. Yeah, there's an amazing Wikipedia page, uh, the English language page for Hong Shui, and it's just called Redology. Right. Yeah, exactly. very, which sounds kind of like very mm -hmm. silly. Um, and lighthearted for what is obviously such a important field mm -hmm. for the people working in it. But yeah, redology. Yeah. You might also think as yeah. a Westerner, oh, it must be like about communism or socialism because he's got red, but no. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, studying, yeah, studying Russia, studying China must be redology, but no, it's the dream of the no. red chamber. Yeah, that's right. Um. And, and you already pointed out the important contrast between these other three classics and the dream of red chamber um the dream of red chamber is you could call it a book of, about women and all the other three forgot about women and it's, it's not like they tried to write about men it's it's like the in the default mode in the default thinking of these authors women don't exist uh, when they exist they have to be tempting seductresses, for example, in the legends of outlaws or the water margins. Um, it, any women that are presented in a feminine, traditional feminine way, aesthetically, they have to be bad women. They yes. have to be women that were seducing the man to do some bad things. Yeah, like Pan, is it Pan Jin Lian yeah. is the big one? Exactly. From, yeah. Yeah. People who were uh, women who were portrayed in a positive light, they they were just acting like men. They were brute. They were killing people. <laughs> like um, that 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 women that were eating people's lives, uh, like pe people's flesh. I forgot. Yeah, there's the I don't know her name, but yeah, there's the big yeah. baddie from Journey to the West. She's um she's she's female, but it doesn't the fact she's female doesn't have much bearing on things. Maybe it makes her more scary. Or something right yeah that's right so um you cannot have strength beauty and a kind heart all in one woman in chinese history and probably in chinese old ideals that, that was never imagined right um I was, I was going to say i think you maybe mentioned early in the conversation or possibly before i hit record jane austen and i remember yeah. as well when i was reading uh Hong Lo Meng, and when I read like a description of it or heard about it before I started reading, I remember thinking, oh, this does sound a bit like a Jane Austen novel 
um mm -hmm. so like it you know set in the real world in, a, in among the ruling or at least a fairly wealthy class who don't do mm -hmm. much practical work and spend a lot of their <laughs> you know a lot of their life is just negotiating social norms with each other in the confines of their home and in mm -hmm. yeah in Jane Austen it's plenty men men's concerns are there but the point maybe is that so are women's so are women's lives and there's also the thing they have in common that both are considered a very high form of literature um like definitely in the western world less so now I think the idea of high literature is shared other less realistic writers like Kafka or modern science fiction writers are in there but still the traditional idea is that the best literary you know I'm doing bunny ear quote marks here the best literary literature is is realistic and like mm -hmm. you said Hong Lo Mong if if you take away the you're, when you're reading it you're not thinking about the magic stuff it's not really relevant it kind mm -hmm. of felt is a very it's risky making these comparisons they always have flaws and limitations but you mm -hmm. could say it's got a bit of a parallel in offers like Jane Austen who I guess this is bad I don't know my history but I don't really know when Jane Austen was writing I think it's a little bit later than Tao Chin, right probably yeah I'm consulting Google right now uh yeah born 1775 died 1817 so a little bit yeah. later in history right yeah. I have no great point to make there just I felt it was on my mind and I hadn't said it yet yeah um that she was always writing about um what's the word for that genteel society right yeah gen genteel yeah genteel yeah. society yes but that's probably the only common point between these two <laughs> right right yeah i won't i won't mind that try to mind that one any further instead um i'll take it to the miscellaneous section um first miscellaneous question is always a word of the day a, a chinese word of the day i didn't think of okay. one in advance really but um do you, if you could pick any one word to capture the spirit of uh dream of the red chamber what would it be women's souls are more beautiful <laughs> well that was what Tao Xixing wanted to write wanted right. to say word of the day I think I should have thought about it more before this maybe soul um let's say beauty beauty is that may yes may that is a good one just may not not may Lee just may just may yeah like aesthetics oh so may can mean aesthetics I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's that's cool. Yeah, Chinese culture is is mainly about aesthetics. Like we have such complicated, exquisite systems of every kind of art form, and and the Dream of Red Chamber is such a great book because you know interwoven into the stories, the plot lines of all these characters, many many characters, very vivid characters are these art forms like paint like painting architecture landscaping um poetry prose embroidery and Cao Xixing knows it all I, I think it has to do with his being part of the noble family like the genteel society the upper genteel society even close to royalty and and so they have been very educated in the older China um, all the gentlemen have to be educated in six aspects of studies, uh, which are archery, um, 
Wait, wait. I think I'm mixing up something. At least for women, you have to be educated in four things: 琴棋书画 So music, uh, especially string music, that you have to be able to play it. Um, and then goal, you know, the the Chinese chess, and calligraphy and painting. And for men, you have to add archery and mathematics,、uh, and stuff like that too. So, so there are six forms of education to men, and four for women. And the four for women also are, are taken up by literary men. So,、um, they're quite common. They have that in common.、Um, henceforth, this book is not just great stories. This book is also like. Lively presentation of what Chinese high culture can be,、um, and you just you get engulfed by how how brilliant and how thick and how rich that culture can be. It's not something that I can practice now. <laughs> It might be an expensive hobby trying to practice all that today. Yeah, expensive in terms of time as well.、Um, I remember. When、right. I was living in China and learning about these different dynasties, I would sometimes ask、mm-hmm. Chinese friends and Western friends who knew a thing or two, but more often Chinese friends,、uh, if you could live in any of these dynasties, which would you choose? And I remember some people, quite a few, and I guess often it was women would say Qing. And my thought was, hang on a minute, why the Qing? Because number one,、mm-hmm. it's the last dynasty; it's a failed dynasty. Number <laughs> two, you're under. Foreign rule, essentially, the Manchu and not the Han、mm-hmm. are in charge, and I guess it was always Han people I was asking. And、mm-hmm. then, like number three, okay, it was a powerful dynasty, but other ones were powerful as well, like the Tang. And maybe this is one reason that to choose the Qing that you've described is that the high culture, for a lot of it, was was very developed. Maybe if you were if you're choosing the Qing, you don't want to be a middle and certainly not a, a working class or a farmer. But if you've got the、mm. life in one of these big family compounds, exactly, not a bad choice. Maybe even one of the the best choices because I guess the culture has had more centuries to develop and build more layers on top of itself than like the, the exactly. That's true. Yeah. But what what were their reasons? I think you had a pretty good guess、uh, of what their reasons should be. But what were their reasons? I'm curious when they I, told you. I don't think I was in. If I did ask for an explanation, I either forgot it or didn't get that sort of an answer.、Mm-hmm. I have another、right. theory: is that, that a lot of the TV sh- historical dramas they may be watching were maybe set in the Qing, but <laughs> that theory. theory probably is a valid one. People usually have a superficial reason to, to um, I mean, to answer to such a. Surreal or science fiction question? <laughs> yeah, superficial superficial question des- deserves a superficial superficial <laughs> answer. And,、uh, next next miscellaneous question. This is the bonus question for Patreon. So I I always snip these out and put them onto a feed for people who like support the show. So listeners, you'll hear the question and then you'll hear some sort of distorted、uh, noise where I've cut out the answer to the question. Anyway, the question. For you, Annie, is this? Do you think a Western reader could read *Dream of the Red Chamber* and walk away with a better understanding of Chinese culture, or would it just be an understanding of like one family at one time in history? I think we can guess you're gonna say yes, but what what are your thoughts about that? Wow, that's such an easy question. <laughs> If you want, yeah. 
I'd like to keep going, but we've been speaking for more than two hours, and it's get it's get, I know it's getting late. <laughs> so I'll take it to the final questions. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Uh, second last question, at least in my list. Uh, if listeners want more, like Hongo Mong, where would you send them? I feel like that's a tricky question, given that this is in our discussion. We've been framing this as like the the tippy top of Chinese lit, but in any case, mm -hmm. if Listeners wanted more. Where would you point them to? Probably uh, some other Qing books. For example, there's one called. Let me just look it up. I read it many years ago. Xianqing Ouyi Let me see if it has an English name for it. But it's not a novel. Um, it's more like a nonfiction thing. Mm -hmm. Occasional enjoyment in a free mood. I liked it because it has such a refined way of telling the small things in Chinese high culture, like how you would raise plants, how you would write poetry, um, how you socialize with friends in, in a very exquisite way. I mean, the socialization. So it's called occasional enjoyment in a free mood. Xianqingouji. It is a bit like this book, except it's not a novel, though. Right, got it. I think I've, I think I've found, found the title. So yeah, it's about sort of refined pleasures of life. You've, you've reminded me actually of a book I did read um, while I was in Shanghai. By I think it's hard to know mm -hmm. if he wrote the things in English and then translated into Chinese mm -hmm. or or vice versa. Who's you might you might know this guy. And of course, now I've I've forgotten his name. Um, that's terrible. Hang on, I'm going to go quiet for a minute and remind <laughs> myself of his name. Damn it! Hang on a minute. That's terrible. If this is my memory now, when I'm an old man, I'm totally screwed. Lin Yutang. Do you, I guess you probably know Lin Yutang, the modern Shanghai writer. Can you see? His or her name again? I'm probably pronouncing the character's name. Lin Yutang. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So he has. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He has a book. I'm trying to remember what the English name is. It's all about. It's a lot. I guess a lot of his work. He was the Packy importance. Moments? No, it's a, it's a nonfiction. English title is The Importance of Living. So this was one of his okay. books where he was trying to basically explain, not just explain Chinese culture to Westerners, but explain like the value of it. Um, trying to like, mm. I, at least when I was reading it, I felt like he was trying to sell me on it. Sounds too commercial. Um, introduce <laughs> me to like why this is not just some sort of, it's more than just a conservative tradition that a nationalistic person would want to preserve but there's something really valuable in the things that if you take in the sort of uh, mindset that underlies that culture why it can help you have a happier life and a lot of it was like yeah pleasure in simple things rather than necessarily complex refined things but yeah when you were describing uh Oji, like just sort of um a culture that or a mindset or a culture that can find value in like wandering around the pine trees in your back garden and listening to the birds <laughs> and watching the sun go down. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be Chinese to realize why that is so wonderful. 
but he was sort of explaining yeah this is part of a whole culture that if you can sort of introduce yourself to it can help you get more pleasure from those brief moments in your life and a thing i appreciated about it was and i realized we're really off topic I'm supposed to be winding the show down but the thing i appreciate about it is and maybe an advantage it has over a traditional western culture is it doesn't force you to depend it it, it doesn't force you to ignore the fact that you're gonna die because i think at least it's i know lin yutang was some of his writing he talks as if he's representing chinese culture but it's very much his own mm. personal ideas so i know it's hard to separate mm-hmm. the two but a lot of what he's writing in that book is like look being alive is something you can relish and there's many ways to do it uh here i'm going to mm-hmm. explain how chinese culture can help you to do it and yeah the one i remember is like the idea of sort of stepping away from your work into your garden to enjoy the air and the flowers and the trees and there's something about that that really resonates for me and yeah i don't have to have grown up in any particular part of the world to appreciate it <laughs> i know i've totally gone off track there but yeah that's the sort of no, thing no, no. i can see mm-hmm. this book might be conveying um and it's it's great that there's like you're saying there's a it's part of a large rich and very old culture that that's one of the things he values yeah you're quite on point um lin yutang is a person that's like a bridge person that can bring together the older China and the more modern China. I well, he's dead now, mm-hmm. um, and he he was a person from that Mingguo Shidai, um What do you call Mingguo? Uh, Mingguo Republic of China. Yes, exactly. He's from Which that time. Awfully confusing because it's just one word away from People's Republic. Exactly from what the country is called now, mm-hmm. um, from the Republic time. So, so he's he he had gone through, he had lived through the end, uh, the decline, the the epilogue of Qing Dynasty, and he had seen with his own eyes the revolutions, the changes, the mega changes of uh, China, um, even into the, the the state that it's now. Um, it, he didn't get to see the whole thing. Um, he didn't live to quite today but he had gone through the big transition part so his works is is bringing us back to um how older times people lived um and how they transitioned for example in his novel picking moment and he i think he quite got the point of if if anybody could summarize and capture the gist of chinese spirit if there is such a thing, if you can capture it, he's probably the best person that can do that. Um, and he's he theorizes it, and he writes novels to present it. And um, he's quite accomplished in that way. And also in his languages, he's he can write in English and he can write in Chinese in in a quite native way. Um, definitely go check check out his books. And I think his ideals of Chinese philosophy is. Um, representative enough. He's a Taoist, and his life ideals are quite Taoism. Um, so when he talks about the importance of living and how people should enjoy their lives, it's quite along the line of Taoism. Taoism is Taoism um, praises about how you should let things take its own form, how you should let things go according to its own nature. So Dao Fa Zi Ran. Um, and from one thing, it will generate 
two two things and two things will generate three things, and you don't have to labor too much to create and build. You should let things to grow to to have its own life,、um, and that way you could have a more natural life in a sense. That's my interpretation of Taoism.、Mm-hmm. For someone who,、yeah. like me, who's naturally a bit lazy, that's a bit of a dangerous philosophy. But I also think <laughs> very true and beautiful in other ways too. Totally. I was going to say something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going to recommend where I would direct readers to. It's a book I already named,、uh, "Family" by Ba Jin、mm. or just Jia in in Chinese. And it's I, one reason is it's shorter. It's probably a simpler book. But I think、mm-hmm. in some ways it is sort of a in in quote marks sequel because it's、mm-hmm. it's set in a more recent part of history. It's、mm-hmm. I believe it's the very sort of very almost the end of the Qing that it's it's happening.、Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a time where modernization and indeed some sides of westernization are 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 kicking off. And the way、mm-hmm. you, we talked a lot about the the women's lives and the troubles they face. Um, family really does not、um, beat about the bush with that. That's what's driving the plot, really. That and a male, a couple of boys that are re- rebelling against the family, but、mm-hmm. it's because of what's happening to their like their sisters,、uh, their their girlfriends, cousins, whatever the women in their lives.、Um, but a thing that I found historically interesting about that one is a lot of it's about education.、Um, the thing. There's a girls' school in town, so girls are starting to get education. But for the progressive-minded boys who are, they are literati in a new politically active world. Like they're interested in contributing to, like, I don't know if you'd call them leftist. Maybe it's too early to use that word, but like political、mm-hmm. progressive magazines and stuff.、Um, they're involved、mm-hmm. in all that stuff. And the thing that these young progressive youths are pushing for one of one of the things. Is um, what what I, what's the word? Co-education between boys and girls, basically, to get the girls out of girls-only schools into a mixed school,、right. so that they can get the same education as the boys. Because、mm-hmm. I guess readers at the time would have known, and I guess modern readers can work it out that at the girls' school, maybe you're only learning those four disciplines you mentioned earlier. You're not learning the practical stuff to get ahead in the modern world, and、mm-hmm. that's not to say that. One book is better than the other. I guess Hong Lu Meng is the more rich classic, but this one makes a very interesting、uh, companion piece that shows you where things went further down the line. Definitely, yeah. And I think Ailing Chan, the the one that the, the author you did some episodes on,、mm. she has an interestingly similar tune or aesthetic tune in in her novels. She's Quite limited in comparison to Cao Shuqing, because I I'm very critical of her way of portraying women. I I think she has limited imagination of women, what women can be. But what she wrote, those women, that those stories were beautifully portrayed,、um, and and there is a very beautiful sharpness in her way of writing about the faithfulness of those women's lives.、Um, That faithfulness of these women figures in her novels, how they would definitely end in a dim, they their their eventual demise,、um, unavoidable demise, and how 
pitifully they are struggling for men's lobs um are very representative of a certain class of women in in her times which is republic times and and the aesthetics of you know the atmosphere that she created in her book is quite similar to that uh, appearance of Tao Xueqing's novel mm. I don't know it's just it's it's an uncanny similarity interesting I had not um I don't think I've thought about her stuff in that way or seen it um discussed in that way so that's that's interesting I'll think about that next time I'm reading one of her stories um yeah I, I would like to keep there's more stuff I'd love to to recommend but I'm going to move us to the final question which is uh, a question about the present what are you reading just now just now um let me check my ibook self <laughs> <laughs> I like to be all over the place so I I'm always not in a haste to finish a book so I'm always like in this book for a little bit today and a little bit in that book um so most currently I was reading Emily Han's China to me you heard oh, of right. him her Emily Han yeah was she living in Mingguo Shanghai for a while is that yeah her? and she married a Chinese man as yes his concubine <laughs> very extraordinary yeah yeah I believe um I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Paul French he was actually the guest who I, when I did my episode on the new tongue he was the guest mm-hmm. Paul's uh he sort of made a, a career researching and writing about and talking about um points in like mostly like Mingguo mm-hmm. mostly that sort of period history of like places where western and chinese culture met with the sort of uh it was initially yeah. like a noir angle he was often very interested in gangsters criminals but that's expanded to like mm-hmm. these sort of edgy either cr- people people who either crossed across all sorts of boundaries could be the law could be gender could be culture so some an unusual person like emily han from uh, like uh mm-hmm. living a sort of semi-colonial but also partly local life in in shanghai is like a very paul french type of guy i think he did a radio bbc radio thing on her or something but yeah just an amazing life she had i know yeah it's very good writer too Mm. and joan didi on south and west right i actually i know the name vaguely i don't know the book um you, you know the person's name vaguely yeah 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 oh so she's probably not as famous as I thought her to be. I think she is. I'm just an ignorant fool. Joan Didion. She was, a feminist. She's, was she a feminist too? Is that right? Or not so much? I don't hear her being framed that way. I mean, not framed, being described that way. But she can be. But she has a she has a lighthearted, or, um, happy-go-lucky kind of way of her writing so maybe she's not serious in feminism but she right. lives in a feminist she definitely definitely lives to the fullest potential of a woman can be right um, i've googled her yeah i've this this rings a bell that she was a journalist my excuse is going to be that maybe she's more famous in america than here in europe but that's i'm basically Probably. just making excuses for myself <laughs> yeah she's, yeah well 
we're I I never I can never claim to be to be all knowing. I'm just now I'm reading uh, a Chinese author's book who's writing in English. I believe he's living in the States. It's uh Chou Xiaolong. He writes the Inspector Chen series, which is another I believe that's another connection with Paul French. I think he's done something on Inspector Chen. But anyway, um Chou Xiaolong has gone and written uh he's written his like detective character into a mystery story set during lockdown in Shanghai. So it's inevitably an interesting read, even if no matter the quality of the book, it's um it's a piece of lockdown fiction set set in China. So it's interesting me. I'm about a third of the way through it. Anyway, before it hits midnight at your end, shall we shall we wrap up the 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 show? Sure. Yep. <laughs> So we've come just about to the end of the show now, Annie. Thank you so much for going down so many meandering corridors uh, through the Dream of the Red Chamber. It's been very fun. It's been exhaustive, I think. Well, maybe not. I don't think you could ever exhaust Hong Lomong in one podcast episode, but we gave it a good try. So, yeah, thank yeah. you so much for coming okay. on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, episode 90 is over. I'm very sad to say it's over because I think anyone who really knew their stuff could talk about this book, Dream of the Red Chamber, forever. And on that note, I'm guessing you have thoughts. If you've, if you feel there's something we didn't touch on that you'd like to have sort of shared on the show or just to me uh, privately, I made that sound awfully intimate, didn't I? If you'd like to send feedback on this episode or just on the show in general, um, feel free to get in touch on the social media. Also, I'm going to put the show's email address into the show notes. I'm thinking that in these final 10 episodes, I'll see if I can build up enough email feedback for uh, a mailbag. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll get like two emails. That's probably the most likely outcome. But potentially that could be really fun. So you'll see the show's email address in the show notes. You can check that out. And if you want to email some long feedback on any episode, including this one, you know, any any thought on the story of the stone, the dream of the red chamber, or, you know, maybe you really have a hardcore take on My Cat Hates Me, the episode on the, the, the cartoon or the comic that we did a few episodes back, anything at all. Anyway, huge thanks to Annie for coming on. That was one of, that was a really standout and a different uh, sort of conversation. I really appreciated it. I hope you listeners did too. Uh, no plugs really, apart from just the, the quick usual ones. Social media, um, follow me, little old me, on Twitter at Angus Likes Words. Follow the show itself on Instagram at, at churchoffic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. There is a very quiet but um, existent Discord channel you can get an invite to in a link in the show notes. And of course, the best thing you can do for the show is tell other people out there in the living world or indeed um, if you're up there in the heaven with Nua and Buddha and uh, disembodied monks tell them if you're down here on the earthly plane then tell your betrothed tell your uh, matriarch or your patriarch um, I'm trying to think of some absolutely knockout funny group of people or person who you should recommend the show to. Maybe your poetry circle. We didn't mention the, the poetry group that forms uh, in the novel in this episode, but if you're a member of a Baoyu-style poetry group, tell all of them about the show, because you know they're literary people. 
bookish people. That's who you should tell about the show. Anyway, I'm, I said I would get this outro over quickly. It's dragging out. Just, I suppose it's in the spirit of Dream of the Red Chamber, a rather massive tome that we should have a, a, at least one unnecessarily chunky segment of the show. It's this one. If you're still listening, I, I have to ask you why, because the show is over. It's just all self-indulgence from here. You need to stop. I need to stop. So there's nothing else to do but say, as IGN. Thank you.